Hello, I'm Charles Clausen, your host of the Ampex Podcast, a show where we engage in conversations with entrepreneurs and innovators whose wild ideas and exponential thinking are reshaping the universe where we live, play, and work. I believe these powerful conversations will inspire you to pursue your dreams. Hello, Sean. Welcome back to the Ampex Podcast. Hey, Charles. So happy to be back. I enjoyed being on your show last time, your podcast last time, and I got a lot of positive response from my, my friends that viewed it. So thanks for having me back again. Just so our, to remind our guest, Sean is um, both a, um, a social, a political, and an energy entrepreneur who's done lots of creative things in his lifetime uh, all over the world. And today we are going to talk about innovation, disruptive disruption, and how to build high-performance cultures in, in the public and private sectors. Then at the end, we'll wrap up with um, kind of an update on his uh, trip last week where he returned from Ukraine, where he spent two weeks dodging Russian missiles as he traveled around the country doing great humanitarian work, trying to help the Ukrainians um, solve some of their most pressing infrastructure and, and challenges. So I think, uh, Sean, what I'd like to start out with is a, uh, just a conversation around innovation in disruption. And maybe you can lead off and, and start with some focus points that you think we would be interesting to talk about. Well, I'm very interested, having both worked in government and in the private sector, and how to create innovative teams. I think it's um, very different when you can handpick your team than when you're given a team. Lots of situations, you can't go out and find a, a team of your liking or making, and how do you motivate them, and how do you bring them into the the world of creativity, disruption, and innovation. I'd like to get your thoughts on that, Charles. Well, that's a great question. And I, I guess there's a couple um, elements that I'd like to talk about. One is the private sector and how in innovative technology companies, you build high-performance teams and attract and retain talent. And the other part would be probably a little more challenging would be in the government sector where you have organizations like the, the, the Veterans Administration or the Department of Energy where people have almost lifetime appointments and um, it's, it's a different environment, a lot more bureaucracy and politics. So which one of those two segments would you like to start with? I'll let you... I think since we're both probably more recently familiar with, with the private sector, and um, I'd really like to hear what you did in your career that, that sort of followed these, these guidelines or where you learned how you think about innovation and disruption. Well, I um, have always been a big advocate of change. So I've always been a disruptor. It's in my genes from the time I was very young, even in elementary school. Whenever anyone said, you can't do that, 
my first response would be, watch me. And so trying to disrupt the status quo and trying to look at opportunities to improve things, make things better, or develop a new product or a new business. So um, I personally deal well with change. Now, humans in general don't necessarily deal so well with change and the uncertainty with change. But in the um, uh, private sector, especially today with in the technology sector, things are moving so fast. I mean, chat GPT has hit the market in the last eight weeks in a big way, and there's millions of users. And it's an example of how artificial intelligence can help us humans in so many different ways, from writing books to um, providing diagnostic support in healthcare and almost in every aspect of our lives. And, um, you know, building high performance teams today, young people, the younger generations are really looking for opportunities. And, you know, part of that, they want to have a voice. They really want to know what's inspirational, what's possible. Then they want to be turned loose to make things happen. The old days of patriarchal command and control organizations don't really work anymore. So we are shifting um, to new forms of organization that are more open, that are more flexible, have different types of communications and, you know, how you build accountability and move fast. So it's um, the, the structures are changing, the way we communicate are changing, and um, creating inspirational opportunities where having a passion or a purpose, where the organization has a purpose, uh, and it's more than just showing up and doing a job. It's showing up and making life better, helping someone in need, um, providing resources, uh, whether it be higher quality water to people in sub-Saharan Africa or improving healthcare. Um, there's just so many opportunities and it's almost endless. No, I think um, having a mission is very motivating. And certainly our careers go back far enough that we are pre-internet, really the advent of the modern internet and World Wide Web. And I think of my first jobs, they were very hierarchical and command-driven, and you snap too. When do you think this changed? Was it the internet? Was it people's expectations of work change, their own sense of, of self versus being part of a bigger entity? What, what brought on these changes? Well, I think um, the internet provided almost instant access to information and access to information before that would be hard to find. So there's the shift now to Web 3.0, the metaverse, um, blockchains. So technology is really the foundational driver of change. And it's, it's moving so fast on so many fronts today that it's, um, 
it's going to take a lot of organizations um, by storm or surprise. So if there is a, a, a business that comes in with a new, a new technology and process that takes 10x or a thousand times the cost out of what it requires to do service and support and execution, the old line established companies may be in for a rude awakening. So, you know, part of the Ampex podcast and what I'm trying to do um, is to awaken people to what's coming. And unfortunately, these technologies are here today. And to at least be open to trying to understand them and how they can help your organization as a, a CEO founder of an established business and to understand what these founders and CEOs of these new startup companies that are um, really embracing the technology and want to make exponential changes. So things like um, the climate crisis technologies will help us with that. So, so many of the, the problems we have with um, you know, gender equality and with food production and with healthcare delivery, there's no doubt in my mind that we, we can't take out 50% or more of the healthcare costs through um, robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, but it's going to be a new model where the AI and the metaverse are our partners. And those that embrace the partnership and embrace the technology and just dig in and figure it out are going to have limitless opportunities. The abundance that's coming is going to exceed anything that humans have ever experienced before. But there is a huge unknown. So, you know, just trying to reiterate and communicate the opportunities and hopefully inspiring people to be curious. I mean, curiosity is um, the mother of invention. And the other side of it is you know, whenever we have depressions or recessions or severe economic challenges, people get displaced. I mean, you can look at Amazon and Google and all the Twitter, all the technology companies have been laying off, you know, six to 10% of their employees. Well, many of these employees are going to come back and take what they've learned and create companies that will be unicorns. Mm -hmm. We'll see more unicorns in the next five to 10 years than we've seen in the, uh, the, the history of the planet. So these companies that come up and become billion-dollar companies in you know, short periods of time. Chat GPT, I think, in the first week had a million, no, in the first day, a million subscribers. And the, you know, that's fascinating, and it's fun. and. Um, I suggest anybody that hasn't gone and, and played with it a little bit, do it. But it also, um, I think curiosity and knowledge makes you less afraid of what AI can do. But I think there's a lot of people out there that are worried about what the disruptions, you know, they, they can see that some people will get plowed over and come up as, as, you know, bigger sprouts, but others will be plowed under by this. And I think they're concerned about new hierarchies being created. We kind of go to this flat 
non-hierarchical workplace, and then suddenly we're going to AI overlords, and I don't believe this, but I think people are concerned about that. Have you thought about that at all? And well, I mean, I believe there's many um, functions in business and in government and in um, healthcare that AI is going to take over. You look at customer service. I mean, bots haven't always been so effective, but the technology is evolving and getting more efficient. So there are certain things that computers in AI can really make a huge impact. Now, there will be huge displacements. You know, Amazon is adding thousands of robots a, a year into mm-hmm. their, their distribution centers. So they're coming, which certain jobs will be eliminated. Then there'll be, be new jobs. But I think with time, society as a whole is going to have to think about displacement. In medical doctors at some point, and I don't know when that is, if it's 5, 10, 15 years from now, will have a AI application that can take, you know, their the inputs from diagnostics, whether it's a blood test, MRI, or new imaging modalities, along with all the symptoms in their history, and look at basically the equivalent of every doctor in the world in a matter of minutes, the AI can search all of these databases and all of this data and come back and say, the probability of this disease is this. Here's your treatment options. The probability of success and the risk are these. So AI becomes a partner. You look at emergency rooms. Look at the University of Iowa. The number of people coming in whacked out on opioids and other drugs is huge. So, you know, almost the first line of triage in an ER is to figure out, is this person stable and do they represent a uh, health risk to our workers? And, you know, things like robotics and AI can make those diagnoses as quickly. They can, they can look at your eye movements. They can look at your facial movements. Mm-hmm. They can look at the undertones in your voice. And a, an experienced ER doc or psych, psychologist would know these because they spent 10, 15, or 20 years, but now you have tools that can capture all of this information and say, you know, this patient is likely on some kind of opiate. They're um, maybe emotionally unstable and just be careful. Um, so then the same in a medical profession, but also in a classroom. You, know, you could have some cameras in the classroom and a little earphone in a teacher's ear. I mean, they're scan, scanning the classroom and say, you know, little Johnny in the back row, um, it's got something going on mm-hmm. and just be aware of it. So where you don't have the knowledge and experience, the AI, and why is this happening now, Sean? It's because of computing power. It's because of, you know, Moore's law. The power of computers and storage are doubling every 18 months and the costs are coming down significantly. And it won't be too long before there's 5 billion people with cell phones that are as powerful as mainframe computers were 10 years ago with 24-7 access to any, anything in any language 
So the, the knowledge and the information is gotten to the point where it's so cost effective, anyone can have it. So and it creates huge efficiencies, but can AI get to the point where it makes people feel some of the functions you were talking about, um, where the teacher is no longer really the monitor of the class? That may make the teacher more efficient at teaching, but it may make them feel more disconnected from the class. You look at a modern airline pilot, they really get in and do their checklist, and the right. plane's pretty much robotic. They're there for, for emergencies, and that's about it. Do you demoralize people as AI comes in? And then how do you create an inspired team when people feel like the chat GPT is doing a better job than half their team members are doing and producing creative and original and insightful content. Well, I, I think that there's an evolution, but let's go back to your classroom question around what is the role of the teacher and what is the role of education in the social development process of children from K kindergarten through college. And I think when you look at the companies out there today in learning, they are metaverse type web three content delivery systems that would immerse a sixth grader in a biology class into a J Jurassic Park 3D type environment where it's experiential, it's interactive, and it, it takes learning to a whole new level. So, and, and that can be cost effective. And when you develop that and you give it to every um, fifth grader in the country, super high quality. They can learn at their own ex uh, pace. It's experiential. What is the role of the classroom and the teacher? Well, I think, in my opinion, that school is a place where chil children go during the day while their parents work, and it teaches children, young adults, social skills. So when you and I were kids running around Glendale Road, we developed a lot of our communication skills and a lot of our problem resolution by our experiences playing baseball or hide and go seek or, you know, building sword casts, uh, snow castles or sledding or whatever it was we did. But, you know, we would have disagreements or misunderstandings and we'd have to sort it out between us. You know, today kids, their lives are so structured. They, they go to school and they come out, then they go to basketball practice and they come home from basketball practice and they have their music lesson. Then they've got to study for two or three hours and they get up and they do it again. So, so much of learning and development of the brain in children has historically been through play and the interactions. We're stripping that out. Mm -hmm. So I think school at some level has to provide a place for children to interact and develop social and behavioral skills. I mean, look at the pandemic and, you know, when kids were at home, uh, depression went up, the social interaction went way down and no one liked it. So as humans in a, a world where AI and the metaverse and web three and robotics are all playing a bigger and bigger role, 
we have to evolve. And, you know, when I started this Ampex podcast, Ampex Perspectives, it was all about trying to look at technologies and how that helps humans shift how we engage, build some sustainability. So in a hundred years, there's still a planet. Uh, you know, I was reading uh, two days ago where the um, the biggest um, glacier in um, Antarctica is melting fast, and there's currents going under it that are warming it up. And when that glacier melts, it could raise sea levels ten feet. Ten feet. I don't know about New Orleans and Miami. Um, in southern Florida, or um, the entire coastlines. But if sea levels come up 5 to 10 feet, there's going to be some displacement, and it's, it's coming. So there is massive changes coming to the earth and the planet that humans have caused, and the technology is going to help us find new ways to address these, these challenges. and. Um, you know, from the, we, we think about and we talk about in the Ampex podcast, um, how innovators in exponential thinking is going to reshape the universe where humans live, work, and play. Well, the universe is more than the earth. So, you know, at, at some point we're going to be expanding to Mars and other places. So, you know, a lot of these science fiction movies and Star Trek, those are going to become reality. But it's, you know, the change that's coming with all of this and how it impacts what we do as humans on the earth and how our life is and how society and religion and politics and business work together is going to shift. So when, when we think about you know, our pillars in the Ampex podcast, it's really driven by disruptive technologies and thinking, but um, then it's how do you maintain the human connection? Because human connection with, with other humans and with machines is critical. And the next pillar is the future of work and education. What is that going to look like and how is that going to change? So as humans, how do you start thinking about that? And that's the curiosity. You know, what's coming and how am I going to position myself to thrive and be passionate about what I'm doing? And there's the opportunities are endless, but you have to spend a little time and go dig and do some digging around and understand it. Then the last part, which I think ties it all together, is being grounded in nature. So getting away from the cell phone and the computer and getting outside where you're disconnected with technology and you're grounded in nature and gives you a chance to settle and just be, um, you know, to help reduce the stress. So humans, most of us struggle with linear change, but what we're talking about today is exponential change. And it's on almost every every aspect of our life. So that's going to cause anxiety and depression. And, you know, there's lots mm -hmm. of challenges, but there's lots of solutions that are going to help us cope with all this, but it's, it's going to be different 
The future is going to be different than anything we've ever experienced or could have imagined. Um, so, you know, um, you know, our, hopefully our conversations inspire people to go get curious and start digging into some of this and thinking about it. Well, I, I definitely want to get more of your thoughts on uh, the nature portion. I think we both grew up as, you know, child, child naturalists out in the woods and playing in the creeks and whatnot here in Iowa. But I want to uh, ask you in context of the company you ran for 20 years, you were president and CEO of a healthcare company, I believe. And if you look at from the time you left that, which I think is roughly five years ago, the emerging technologies over those five years, if you look at those 25 years from the time you started that, it's just too much breadth. But in these five years, are there things that would change that have happened that would change the way you would manage that company, manage your teams in that company and excite and inspire the people in your company? Absolutely. Well, one, the technology platforms in terms of how you establish the vision and the goals, then how you communicate down through the organization of change. Um, there is uh, platforms out there today that start with, I mean, Google was a great example. You know, Eric Schmidt, when he was CEO, they would come up with the high level vision and key initiatives, then those would flow down through the entire organization, <clears throat> all the way to the line workers. And, you know, they have a process where when you have your one-on-one -on -one with your manager, the, the one-on-ones are actually managed by the employee. And it's all about communication and what you're working on and what the manager or leader can do to help help enable what you're doing, but the organization, I mean, they have apps where you can look at anyone in the organization and, you know, cross-functionally what they're doing and what their priorities are. And these things are all set up to evolve, you know, quickly. And I, last time I looked, Google had, I think, seven businesses that all had over a billion users and they continue to innovate. And I think you know, an organization's ability to innovate is critical. And whether it's on the operating side, um, so many businesses have open positions. You can't find people. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion around quiet quitting and other um, issues with employment. And, I mean, we're basically fully staffed in this country uh, mm -hmm. with a three-point whatever unemployment. So there's many organizations, I mean, I think the VA is 50% of their positions are open. So how do you deliver when you have, you know, 10, 20, 50% openings? Um, in I mean, the VA is providing critical care to vets and their health care. And think about the pandemic and think about the pressure it put on ER and all the hospital staff to have to work long hours and all the people mm -hmm. saying, I'm done. Right. Medicine is no longer fun mm -hmm. uh, and they're, they're leaving. So, you know, we have to find ways to relieve burdens in healthcare, relieve uh, administrative burdens of doctors, make them more efficient so they can spend more time helping customers. I mean, patients 
but also um, I think there's opportunities in the U.S. to drive out 50% of our delivery costs. So if you can reduce the, the operating delivery cost of healthcare services by that much, you can have bigger budgets to hire more people than you, you, and you can use technology to make what they're doing more meaningful and you know, find a balance, the balance between work and your private life and your personal life is critical. But, you know, if you're working 12, 14, 16-hour days, and, or if you're someone on the lower economic end of the spectrum and you're working three jobs and you don't even have health insurance, at, at some point it gets overwhelming and people become anxious. So how can we build a better future where we help each other? And we build a society where, you know, we find some balance in equality, at least in terms of healthcare and, you know, minimum levels of standard of living. The, um, there's a few people in the world, these billionaires, and someday we'll get to trillionaires, where they control such a large segment of the economic wealth that I'm, I'm just concerned that there's a lot of people left behind. And, there's enough abundance that we can find creative ways uh, to support everyone with basic needs. And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm just talking about different societal models and different perspectives on how we work and engage with each other and, you know, have some human compassion and empathy um, and find solutions that, you know, where everyone can feel um, like the minimum level uh, life support, you know, housing, mm -hmm. food, medical care is there. And I don't know how we're going to solve these problems, but I know that young people are stepping up every day. Well, they certainly, they certainly care, and they certainly um, speak like they care. But we're also old enough to remember the generation that came out of the 60s and the 70s that were going to solve all the biggest problems from war to pollution. And they got distracted along the way. They got really busy in running their, their lives. And I think what you were talking about with the doctors at the VA, for instance, you know, coming together and thinking creatively about solutions when you're overwhelmed with just getting through every single day is a problem. So you can have the best theories of management and team building and, and motivation. But if you can't somehow give people the room and the space, both in their schedules and in their heads, to take those concepts and implement them, uh, you're a little bit stalled out. And then how do you keep people in a space where they can be creative throughout a career or throughout a life? So they can take the inspiration the 60s generation had and not become the yuppies of the 1980s. They stay inspired to make a better world. And um, I bet a lot of the climate change deniers of the 90s and 2000s, you know, some of them were the ecologists of 1968. And I don't know, how do you 
how do you inspire and keep a movement alive over the amount of time it takes with these very complex, difficult, multi-generational solution type problems? Well, that, that's a great question, Sean, with a lot of pieces. There's probably a, a couple podcasts in that question alone, but I think going forward, there's, there's new leadership tools and, and leadership models that help bring focus to those issues. Um, if you're a government employee and you've been in a very bureaucratic agency like the Department of Energy or uh, the VA, change can be slow and it can also be frustrating where you feel like you don't have a voice. But I think that's changing. I know the VA is, has a major initiative going on to transition to preventative care and new delivery models that help bring some level of ownership for your health to yourself, but also help train, educate our vets on healthy habits, you know, the epigenetics and the choices you make can have a huge impact. And, you know, the, the, the post-traumatic stress of some of the traumas that they've been through, I think, as a country, sometimes we forget about our vets and some of those things fall through the cracks. But I know there's people working diligently uh, to try to make that better. And I think there's two sides to that. So you've got the organization and the leadership and the culture within the organization, whether it's a public or private organization. Then you've got the employees and I think a lot of the young people, um, the younger generations, are passionate, and it's not just about the highest-paying job. So they want to make a difference. But I, I think there's also a lot of creative, innovative uh, people, baby boomers and the older generations that haven't given up, and they feel like they can make a difference, and they want to engage. So as a leadership cultural perspective it's up to us to create an environment that's more open source it's much flatter and you raised a question offline before we got started about employees that view their job as um, an entitlement and aren't necessarily interested in driving change or be being part of change. But I think in every government organization, there are people who, if you give them a voice and give them an opportunity and prove that you're actually willing as a department to change, you know, if you're in the Department of Energy and you want to make some real shifts uh, to more clean and green environments and give them the opportunity to look at what we can do and how we can do it, but more importantly, you know, help drive those changes. Now, unfortunately, in Washington, every time we have a regime shift, a new president, a new um, party comes into office, we have politicians that get in the way and, and demotivate. And I think the disruption 
political disruptions to you know government bureaucracy and organizations has probably become a lot more extreme. So, you know, how do you retain people in these departments when potentially every four years you go from one extreme to the other, and you spent twenty years building you know EPA guidelines and programs, and they they all get unwound and the uh, the detriment to the environment can be significant. So how do you motivate people as a leader of one of these administrations? You know, and these department leaders change with political change. So it's government um, is an interesting challenge, but I would argue that um, in the future, through blockchains, that we could see changes in policy and how decisions are made that might be, and this is kind of disruptive, bigger than any one country, any one sovereign, any one dictator, um, where we'll call it um, Gov 3.0. And I know there's people and organizations working on this. And, you know, with blockchains where you can have distributed um, programs and contracts and processes that can't be controlled by any government um, and can't be altered, I'm pretty sure that we're going to see new forms, and whether that's five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, but we will have a future guest who's actually in the midst of all of this and how um, governance and policy, public policy, may evolve that may be bigger in any one country. And if you think about the impact where maybe the politicians aren't necessarily controlling everything, um, you know, Putin in the last week um, withdrew from the last nuclear treaty that was out there. Yeah. And um, so I can't tell you what it's going to look like, but in talking to people that are driving these things, it's, it's coming. And I don't know what it's going to look like, but as humans, um, if we're just open to the thought that there is going to be massive shifts in how we communicate hierarchical structures from, you know, the, the four days of, you know, production efficiencies to now it's leveraging uh, computer, quantum computing, um, cell phones, AI, robotics. It's going to change in ways that we can't even imagine. So your ability to imagine and create, if you, you come in with a clean slate, and we're talking about disruptive innovation, understand the baseline technologies and what's possible, then thinking about how you can leverage those in different niches or different applications or different problems. And I guarantee you there's millions of people thinking about that. And, you know, we have the, the Ampex Navigator, which is a newsletter, which talks about these, these four pillars, the disruptive technology, the human connection, the future of education and work, and grounding in nature. And every day there's examples um, that you can stand quickly and get insights into the change that's coming. But it's, it's, it's mind-boggling, and it's, it's 
happening all over the world. It's mind-boggling, but it's also one step away from the user in most cases. So what really let desktop computing take off was both the Mac and the Windows systems being applied to something that had been around for a while. Suddenly it was intuitively obvious to people how to interact with it. I'm not sure where we are with blockchain that it becomes, you know, the user interface is such that you and I can sit down and feel like we're interacting or communicating or influencing blockchain and understand it because it's speaking a language that we already already speak. And I'm I know almost nothing about blockchain, but I keep thinking someone's got to show me something with blockchain that makes sense to me based on when I entered the working world, things were, you know, written on paper and handed around by messengers. Right. Well, I mean, I, I think that would be a great conversation for another podcast. But I mean, if you think of different applications that are coming, you know, when you go to buy a house, your mortgage, your title opinion. Mm-hmm. Today, you've got a, a stack of paper an inch and a half thick that shows you the chain of title for that piece of mm-hmm. property from the day it was plotted to present. And it can take 30 to 45 days to get an updated title opinion. At some point, all of those real property records are going to be in a blockchain. So you want to buy a house, and it might take an hour to update the title opinion. And it won't involve a law firm, someone sitting down. It'll all be done by digital legal review. Um, if you think about healthcare today, um, some so if you go in the emergency room, um, patients can have up to seventeen different pharmacy files. So if you're a physician, you, you got someone's got to go out and try to find all the different um, prescriptions that the patient is on. And if you miss one or two, it can make a huge difference in your diagnosis and how you treat them. But just imagine we each have our own personal blockchain that has um, our complete medical history on it, every MRI, CT, and ultrasound, every blood test, your DNA profile that can be pulled up by anyone in the world that you give access to it 24 seven. Cause right now it's so inefficient and it's hard to do make treatment, but you put that in a blockchain and give access to it. I mean, look at physician credentialing. You could put all of that in blockchain. Uh, right now, physicians are licensed by state, but just think about it if you had North America where a physician they went through the training, they passed their boards, and whether it's United States or Canada, you know, they're at a certain level. And a physician in North America could go, you know, there's a lot of people that left medicine, but they might be willing if they live in Iowa in the winter, well, I'll go to Phoenix for three months and I'll um, practice medicine. And then next year I want to go to Florida for three months uh, during the winter and practice. So you, you make it so people with resources and capabilities are more mo- mobile and you don't make credentialing. If you wanted to go to Phoenix for three or four months, the amount of time it would take to 
do the testing and everything becomes a um, bottleneck. And, you know, in rural Iowa, we have a huge crisis with rural physicians. Well, mm -hmm. um, telemedicine can help, but, you know, what if we collaborated with um, medical schools in Indus, India and we had training programs that met the U.S. standard or the Canadian standard, or maybe we have a, a global standard for what it means to be a neurosurgeon, another global standard for cardiology. So you train people to this standard, then, then they can get certified. So let's say we find doctors in India that are willing to come and work in rural Iowa and commit to 10 years. So we can solve some of the the resource problems, but when you when you really think about it, you know we have a huge problem with medical malpractice. So with you know a more comprehensive medical record for each individual that's HIPAA compliant, that doesn't breach any of those protocols, that would allow supercomputers AI to come up and look at everything that's happened to that person in their history, all their tests, the current test, and they can say based on the, the diagnostics and what we know, here are the, the potential disease states or issues, and here are the potential treatment options, and here are the risk. And I think that'll go a long way to reduce medical malpractice because you have a partner who's coming in and a, a second set of eyes that can look at all the knowledge in all the clinical specialties across the board and give you um, diagnostic indications and probabilities and treatment. So if you're a physician and you have, you know, high quality partner, it's, it's going to be hard to go off the rails or make a really bad choice. Now there will continue to be incompetent physicians, but I'm not sure that they're going to be able to stay in the system with the transparency that will come. Right. So using these technologies, if we could reduce malpractice insurance because of the diagnostic and therapeutic decision support systems that support medicine, that'll make a big difference. And there, I mean, the technologies that are coming today, by the end of this dec decade, Dean Camus is working on a, an initiative that uh, Obama asked him to do, but it's basically 3D printing of organs. So just imagine if you can get a new heart, a new kidney, mm -hmm. a new liver, a new pancreas that was print, printed on a printer yeah. with cells that are compatible with your DNA where you're replacing these organs. And it's, you know, my understanding that all the FDA approvals and processes will be done by the end of this decade. So if you can last seven years, um, there, there'll be new solutions that totally change it. There'll be a I mean, the possibilities with CRISPR, I think of CRISPR as a word processor for your DNA. Mm -hmm. So you have sickle cell anemia and you're missing um, one gene and you go in and you edit it and you put that gene in and all of a sudden you no longer have it, you're cured. So some of these genetic diseases that are rare and lethal, um, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, we're going to be able to to cure. So 
um, there still needs to be some human responsibility for making good decisions. Because, you know, how you exercise, what you put in your mouth, what drugs you take, what alcohol you consume, these all impact how things like diabetes play out in the future. But um, the technology is going to help us be so much more efficient. And it's mind-boggling to me that you'll have a, a computer that can be as powerful as all the doctors on the planet in seconds. So to take all of that knowledge, all that wisdom, all that skill set, yep. and it's because of you know supercomputing and the speed and the, the cost of storage and all of these sensing technologies that, I mean, this is coming in the next five to 10 years, the changes are gonna be significant. I mean, it's exciting. And you can say, well, what about the dark side? Well, there's always a dark side to technology. There's always people that will exploit it for bad. But I think the abundance and the good can be so, so much and so impactful that, I mean, there's no going back. Unfortunately, there is no going back. That's right. It, we'd have to really lose you know, go back to the Stone Age practically if we lost all power and all technology. But you can't take small steps back, and you certainly can't take big steps back. It's really been interesting watching the the rollout of the new Bing product by, I believe that's a Microsoft product, and that, my understanding is, deep reading. Um, it's basically read everything that's been created by man, and it's gauging its responses on that. So if you take, if that's essential, I don't know if that's similar blockchain or anything, but you've got massive amounts of records all together in one place and the decisions AI can make or a human reader could make from that much information if they could possibly process it and then take it for one, one expertise in medical science and all the patients that have ever interact with that, that sub sub uh, field of medicine, the solutions that you could come up with seem to be incredible and certainly um, would redeem AI for any, any negatives that could come out of it. Yeah, it's, um, so I, I believe you're referring to the open AI software that um, Microsoft made a huge investment in open AI and they have the chat GPT process. And I, um, I think there's a version 3.0 and a, a 3.5, and there's um, 1.7 billion uh, elements into the in the algorithm. 1.7 billion, and it gets processed so fast. So these, um, you know, you can use ChatGPT to help write books. You can help use it to write, to ask questions. Um, if you think about corporations and business America uh, businesses, I think um, ChatGPT or some version of that will be a member of the board of directors, board of advisors of businesses. Because how can you ha have a board meeting? You know, any question you have, you just if you know how to ask the right questions, it will go out and search everything. Um, you know, I do this daily newsletter, and it's it's driven by Galileo, which uses um, ChatGPT 
is a baseline and I've been a, a beta site member for about four months and it goes out every day and searches 500,000 500, sources. It's forward looking, it's positive, you know, it validates the truth of the information from multiple sources and you set it up in the different categories. In our case, we have the four pillars, disruptive technology, human connection, future of work and, and grounded in nature. Then you give it key keywords, then you, you train it. And then the users who read the newsletter, when they open it and they open articles, they get feedback driven in to Galileo, which changes. So it's continually up, upgraded based on the users and what they're engaging with. So it evolves every day, but it's half a million sources and it's positive and it's forward looking. And the, the beautiful thing about the newsletter, the Ampex Navigator is you can open up on your cell phone. There'll be 10 different articles, which are summarized with one to three sentences with a picture. You can scan all of them in one or two minutes. Then if you're interested in an article, um, you know, yesterday there was an article about um, Dubai and how they, they are going to become the world's leader in um, DeFi and, you know, blockchains. And I think there's already a thousand companies. And it gives you insights into what's going on in whatever particular field you're interested in. Then it also gives you stories and examples and you can dig deeper. And it, so it makes it incredibly efficient. I mean, you could go out on yourself and chat BT and ask all these questions every day and spend an hour or two drilling it. But if there's a specific thing that you're interested in, if you're in private equity or you're in healthcare and you're in education, you can get a daily newsletter curated to the exact things you're interested in. And it'll go search everything that's been published in a journal, the Harvard Business Review, and newspapers around the world and give you a daily update and summary. So we're excited to roll that out and LinkedIn and social media in the next week and make it a free resource that is available to the curious. Um, and it's called the Ampex Navigator, but that's, that's coming in the next, the next week. And the Navigator, how's that different from the current, current newsletter? Is it? Well, that is the current newsletter. Okay. That's what we call it. It's, okay. you know, it's the Ampex um navigator and actually we, we call it riding the wave so when you think of the the wave of technology and that's coming it's like a global tsunami so the analogy i you know when i came up with the title it's you know you can be curious and you can get on your surfboard and you can ride the wave or you can say i'm horrified and terrified about this and i don't want to know about it or I just don't care. But um, those that are curious and get on the leading edge of this wave, in you know, right now we're in a um, an economy where you have to develop a personal brand and you have to decide what you're passionate about. But you need to evolve with the evolving technology and redefine. I mean, you might have to redefine yourself ten or twenty times in the next thirty years in a career. 
about how you're going to be meaningful and make an impact. But if you have the information from, you know, the wave newsletter, <clears throat> you're going to know in one to two minutes a day what's coming and how you position yourself. So it's, um, you know, it's a resource and you don't have to go out every day and spend an hour or two in chat BT, GPT trying to figure out what you want to know. It just comes. Well, in the way you describe curating, curating this, it's very much the future of work. It's Instead of going out there, and when I was at the Department of Energy, we'd get the daily news clips every morning. Someone got up at four in the morning and read all the newspapers, cut them out, paid some pieces of paper, and made, made Xeroxes and dropped them at, you know, all the political pointies uh, office doors, right? Now you have a, uh, you said Galileo right. goes out there, it reads it all, figures out what's relevant, pulls it together, and work has changed dramatically just in that, that small, small tip that sort of was talking about, finding a way that we touch and feel AI and blockchain every day makes it more accessible. But hearing about that and seeing that and seeing your newsletter, it is part of the future work, which will be the past of work as well someday, I suppose. Yeah, but. Exactly. So it's, you know, it's part of my mission to spark the curiosity of people to understand what's coming so they can figure out you know, how to position themselves. So it, there's so many people that don't have an interest or can't be bothered, but you know, if you, if you can spend one or two minutes a day to get updated, then you just dig in to more detail about the one or two things that you're interested in. You know, this is five days a week. It shows up in your, in your email and you open it up on your cell phone and you scan it and you decide what you're interested in. But, um, there won't be any major surprises, but you see the kind of the collective trends and disruptive innovation across healthcare, across, um, you know, there was an article yesterday in Dubai about autonomous vehicles that were delivering food and, you know, shows you a picture of the vehicle and tells you about the program and, you know, how it's working and what they're doing. But whether it's uh, compassion and human connection and how you build cultures that engage people and, you know, the empathy and compassion to build cultures where people still feel like people and they feel like they're part of it. This is all important. And it just, it, it puts you on the leading edge with, you know, two to three minutes a day and how many people can't spare two to three minutes a day. Right. So, you know, we're excited about that. That's coming out probably next week. Good. It's a great tool. And I think people really need to embrace change. And life's more exciting when it's not the same decade after decade or even year after year or week after week. And seeing where it's going helps you be better positioned to, to face that change, embrace that change, and make that change yours. Be a part of it so it's great that you put that tool out there yeah well you and i are de definitely innovators and disruptors and we get excited about the change mm -hmm. and how it can help make the world a better place um we should probably shift gears a little bit now um i understand sean that you just came back last weekend from 
two weeks in Ukraine, and I'd like to talk about your experience, your whirlwind trip around the country, dodging sometimes literally within an hour or two Russian bombs that were being dropped in the city that you just departed. So give us an update on your humanitarian projects and what you saw and what, what the morale and what's going on in Ukraine. So I have two missions. I've been going to Ukraine for a year now to help out since the war began. The anniversary of the war is tomorrow. That'll be one year since Russia invaded. Now, the war really goes back to 2014 when Russia took Crimea and part of the Donbass and Luhansk regions. And at that time, there was an organization that was formed by people that were displaced by that invasion. That organization is called Vostok SOS. So during my second trip up, since this chapter of the war started, in August, I spent time with Vostok SOS. They're a very nimble group, about 150 people, almost all of them doing on-the-ground work. With uh, They're running shelters throughout the country for displaced people. I visited a shelter they had for immobile people, people that are paralyzed and people that are so early they can't walk, so very special needs. Uh, they are running women's centers for they have six of them around the country for women that have been displaced. And they, they're staffed. Every center has five employees. One of them's a lawyer to deal with all the legal problems that come up. One's a psychologist. Uh, one's a teacher to deal with uh, children and, and the issues the children have. And a couple are, are really running the place. And then um, they're documenting war crimes. They're doing evacuations. I was there one, day, one night when they brought in a Dnipro uh, train car load of evacuees from the front lines. There's a family with five children, two parents and a grandmother in a wheelchair that had been staying on the front lines um, for the last year. And they finally, as things were ramping up, decided finally time to leave. People don't leave because they've got a little bit of, they don't have much, but they may have a cow and a couple pigs some chickens and a goat, and you just can't leave all that behind. It's your entire wealth. And so I was constantly amazed when talking through interpreters to people, whether it be at the shelters or the evacuees, how long people stayed beyond what seemed logical. I also traveled up into areas that the Russians had occupied in the north, but had been pushed back from, as well as in the the east, and up there's, there's these administrative areas that are collections of 15 to 20 villages that will have one, one government that oversees them. And those, one of those collections of villages, 200 of the houses were completely destroyed by the Russians, and 1,200 were significantly damaged. Well, the Russians have been gone for nine months, but those people's problems don't end there. They're trying to rebuild their houses. They need food. They're unemployed. Uh, power's on and off everywhere in the country all day long. Very hard to keep any business up and running in that circumstance. Anyway, Vostok SOS is the group I've been working with. We've now formed a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit in the United States, which you can go to our website and donate through. Uh, the money goes there. 
It's a way to raise money in the United States, which they haven't been doing. They spent about, since this chapter of the war started, 2 million euro, which is about, I'm sorry, 4 million euro, which is about $4 million. And our goal in the U.S. is to raise them $2 million in the coming year. And the other part of my mission had to do with energy. So my principal business is I've got an energy company. And I meant to just focus on carrying and, and feeding issues in Ukraine. But in October, when the Russians started to blow up the electrical infrastructure as a, as a military strategy, essentially, or a campaign of harassment, and to inflict suffering on the Ukrainian people, they, um, it occurred to me that I'm working with people every day over and really over the last 30 years in the energy sector, maybe I could use my company to help identify equipment to go to Ukraine. So we had meetings while we were in Ukraine with the deputy minister of energy that's dealing with the destruction of electrical infrastructure, keeping the grid going, and bringing in equipment to rebuild it. They've had 30% of their generating capacity, whether they be coal-fired plants or gas turbines or whatnot, destroyed. So they've gone from being a net exporter of energy to a net importer. And so on a, a separate channel from what I'm doing with Vostok SOS USA, we are trying to help Ukraine out, and we've identified some equipment. We're going through a process of helping the U.S. government figure out how to operationalize their response. The U.S. government's very good at spending $100 million. They aren't very good at spending, if you find a couple transformers for $300,000, they aren't good at responding that way. So we've been working with the U.S. Department of State, U.S. Department of Energy on how to do this, um, to find small pieces to the puzzle that will have a real difference to people's lives. You rebuild a transformer suddenly, uh, or replace a transformer, suddenly, you know, a thousand people have power again that don't have it now. Well, transformers have usually a three-year wait list from the time you order them to get them. So um, the U.S. government is interested in figuring out how to do this, but they need a test case. We've now found supply, we found demand, and when I get back to D.C., we'll be working on how to get the financing for the donation of the equipment going. Oh, that's fantastic. You, you referenced, Sean, that 30% of the power generation capability has been taken out. What, what has happened to the grid? So you said they were importing energy, but has the grid been diminished by 30% or has it even been worse? The Ukrainians throughout the war are showing themselves to be incredibly resilient people and very smart at adapting to new situations. They were left, one of the legacies of the Soviet Union was a very robust grid with lots of redundancies built in. They really did plan for what-if scenarios and then acted upon those scenarios if there was a nuclear war with the United States or the West. And how do you bring redundancy into the system? So a legacy of some ways of Russian governance of the area is a system that amazingly has been easy 
to patch as long as they have the equipment to do it, or where there's secondary secondary routes to to move power around or or to convert the voltages from transmission to distribution voltages. Uh, but they are limited by the components they have there. Um, a lot of the focus bombing has been on these substations. That's where the transformers, the switchgear is. And if once that's gone, it may be able to be repaired or rebuilt, but often it's not. And that's, that's the big hole in the system. But most places, they're able to have the power on part of the day, although there's places that are, are um, completely cut off. One of the interesting things talking to the deputy minister of energy was he said, we're really looking for s solutions. We need stuff, but we need solutions. And they're trying to find out how to take some of the next, um, the next generation of, of grid and apply it now. There's a lot of talk about, and we worked in Detroit, my company did, for a long time on what's, what's called a microgrid, where you can island it completely, have your generating there, and have your local distribution system, being able to cut it off from the rest of the system. And we spent a lot of time, and there weren't really good microgrid examples at the time in the United States, and for various bureaucratic reasons, it never got funded. But um, the, we had a long talk uh, with the Deputy Minister of Energy about microgrids, and that's one thing they're thinking about. So if you can bring in local generation, you may not be able to pull out the very high voltage transmission voltage and break it down through a transformer to distribution voltage, but you might be able to put in a solar array and a battery and have a microgrid for one village. And they're going to have short-term solutions, these Band-Aids. Let's fix it. Let's stick a piece of equipment there medium-term solutions, things to keep them going through the war, islanded microgrids that are very doable. And we're talking to a big manufacturer of um, diesel generators about making systems big enough for about 1,000 homes and all and being able to do this. And then they're looking at what are the long-term solutions? Where do we go with our energy infrastructure when the war ends and the equipment's no longer at, at risk of being destroyed by these, these missile attacks. Well, that's, um, that's fascinating. We you know this whole purpose of this podcast was to talk about technology and disruptive innovation and uh, building culture. And the Ukraine people have been amazing at their resourcefulness and adaptability. I wonder, when you were over there, Sean, what was the the emotions and the spirit de corps and um, of 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 the people as you traveled around the country to communities that had been bombed and families that are not relocating because they don't have any way to move their cow and their goats and their you know their personal yeah. belongings? You know, how are the people holding up? But so interesting about human nature that you can be traumatized at the same time you are are hardened right you talk to ukrainians and they'll tell you they aren't going to leave their homes you know the ones that have stayed or they don't want to leave their villages while they're being bombed and they're resolute but every one of them 
when you talk to someone that's been helped by Vostok SOS, and inevitably everybody ends up with a tear in their eye when they tell you their story because they've been through hell. So it's, it's you know, this, this range of, of stoicism and, you know, what they used to call having a stiff upper lip and we're going to take it and we're going to endure and we're going to march on and we're going to stay put and we ain't taking nothing from no one. And at the same time, you know, they are deeply affected. Uh, in the capital city, in the Kiev, it's a very different feel because people are there. They're going to their jobs. The city has, the whole country has a curfew at 11 at night. So everything's kind of in, going out to restaurants and all gets cut off pretty early, but there's enough people that have money that are in the restaurants. And in some ways, it can feel normal. But even if you talk to them, the people you see in the in the places that aren't from villages, they know people that have been killed. They've got a brother that is serving on the front lines, or or they've got a story of um, you know their apartment building. Being a, we visited a friend's apartment that was on the north side of Kiev, as far south as the Russians came, and you know it had missiles through it, and um, they had to go help evacuate a friend from, you know, right in the middle of the bomb, bombing, the shelling up in um, the Bucha urban area where some of the worst atrocities happen. So it's touched, it's touched everybody. Um, a lot of people have left the country, so I can't say everybody's been stout-hearted or I'm going to stick it through. Is there still of, an open pathway out of the country, or they closed not the borders? For, not for men. Men can't leave unless you're over, I think it's 50 or 60 years old. But women, women can leave, and men with a medical exemption mean they can fight. There's been no conscription. Um, everybody's a volunteer that's fighting, but they didn't want the men to leave because they wanted, if they needed them in reserve. They've got enough fighters, it seems, for the time, time being without conscription. But I've heard, you know, 12 million or so, about a quarter of the population has left the country, and about a quarter of the population is internally displaced. So you talk to these administrators of villages. We talked to one of the deputy mayors of Zeporizhia and met with the deputy mayor, Kiev, who's the head of strategy for the mayor, who's interestingly enough, Klitschko was the former heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Um, but you talk to them and they talk about their cities, the drift of people, They've lost a lot of people, but they've had a huge amount of people backfill from the areas that are occupied and are fighting. So their unemployment rate in Kiev is 34%, according to the uh, strategists for the mayor we met with, which is incredibly high. Uh, but there are, there are people there. It's just they aren't necessarily the right people to do those functions, or if it's a factory or manufacturing facility right. with irregular power supply, you can't really keep it going in. Well, it's interesting, nothing gets flown in anymore. You can't fly there because obviously you get shot down. Um, and most of the Black Sea, other than grain shipments, is shut down. So driving, we took a bus from Warsaw to Kiev, which was a very uncomfortable, long 13 and a half hours in a, in a, man's Greyhound bus, huh. um, but the, there must have been 10 miles of trucks lined up at the border 
bringing supplies in as we went from um, Poland into Ukraine. You know, the bus fortunately was able to go around them, but everything has to come in by truck now. And, and I'm sure there's different channels that bring in all the military and equipment in because it wasn't on the main highway there. I'm sure they've got a, a back door somewhere. So President Biden's recent surprise visit, how was that received and what did that do to, you know, the morale of the people and the country? It's, I mean, I think it was gutsy and took a lot of courage to show up in the middle of a war zone. You know, I think I've only talked, it was only a few days ago, but I talked to a few friends and they were excited um, about it. I was woken up to a message in the morning, Biden's in, in Kiev, and I'm like, you know, turn on the TV and sure enough, um, look at, they are very, very pleased with America's support. Everybody you talk to is grateful that, that, America and the West has been supporting them. Um, I heard, I heard nothing but, but praise for that. And my my friend and business partner Jim and I traveling there. The reception we got from people was very warm and very, very thankful that we'd come into a war zone, even though we didn't we didn't feel much at risk. And as he mentioned, we seemed to have good luck. That I mean, bad luck that there's cities being um, under missile attack. But when we were down in the south and the east, it seemed like every time we left a town, uh, Zaporizhia, which I mentioned earlier, for instance, 20 hours after we left, it was hit by 17 missiles. Dnipro, I think an hour after we left, it got hit. And then we had two similar experiences. And just, um, you know, at night we saw some flares being shot up for this and that, but we really didn't interface with that side of the war, thankfully. So as a, an individual citizen on a humanitarian visit to the Ukraine, how do you think about and process the emotions and the fears about, you know, you're going into an active war zone and there's bombs literally landing within hours of your departure of a number of these cities you visited, um, you know, that takes some courage and some guts. But, you know, before you went, you know, what were you, what was going through your mind, Sean? You know, I guess I'm a, enough of a math guy that knowing how many bombs there are, how big these cities are, there are the chances of being at the right place at the right time. Um, it's probably slim being on the right street corner when that intersection gets hit by a, a missile. I mean, it's... So it's probably more dangerous to drive across Washington, D.C. at rush hour than it is it to visit be. the Ukraine. I told people over there, I'm like, are you I'm like, I'm a country, in a country that has 30,000 gun deaths a year. You know, 20,000 20, of those are a suicide. But, you know, that's... I don't know how many civilians have died so far in Ukraine. Now, of course, we have a much larger population, but, um, you know, it's, it's all kind of relative. And yes, you're putting yourself in a harm's way a little bit, but I've also jumped on my bicycle and ridden from Washington, D.C. To, to Iowa, you know, and there's a certain, we all take risk, I guess, and probably it's more dangerous than being in D.C., which has 200 murders a year, but... 
less dangerous than, you know, back-roading on a bicycle across the country. So. Well, as a formal, former Washington insider in the Clinton administration and the other um, administrations that you served, how do you um, um, perceive the world support of the Ukraine and the, some of the... Um, lengthy time it's taken to get some of these things. I know Germany recently committed to sending Tiger tanks. Have any of those tanks showed up? And, um, you know, I think the world's support of Ukraine will have a lot to do with the future of democracy and the future of power in Europe. I mean, there's a lot at stake. So I, I mean, I think this is vital to U.S. security and um, you know, hopefully politicians continue to be fully supportive of this. But, you know, as an insider, you think it's moving as fast as it can move or could it go faster? Well, the United States has made an 80-year investment in democracy in Europe and stabilizing Europe. And Europe's made that same investment. So it's not surprising that we want to back up that investment when push finally comes to shove after we've spent so much time and money on um, not only, and I'm collectively meaning the European community and the United States, not only the Marshall Plan, well, first engaging in World War II, then, then the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe, then creating the defensive line against the Soviet Union for so long, and then being involved in welcoming of Eastern European countries into NATO and into the European Union, huge expense of treasure to make people's lives much, much better there. And at this stage, if we don't back up that investment, that investment could all be long-term for not. So I think it's very important. And I think Europe and America, or most Europeans and Americans, recognize this isn't just something that happened a year ago or in 2014. This is something that's really affecting what our core beliefs are, or you, you know what we've invested in based upon our core beliefs. Um, as far as timing, you think about our slowly stepping into World War II, you know, Lend-Lease Agreement, all that. Look at how long we took in the, with the breakup of former Yugoslavia and getting involved in Croatia and Bosnia and Kosovo. We just moved slow. And I said this to people a year ago, we're going to get there, but it's going to be baby steps and bigger steps and bigger steps. Some of these um, systems, weapon systems that we're offering, have quite a long training regime in it. So when the war looked like it was, might last a few months, sending over a battery of Patriot missiles that have a six-month timeline to train people on, or Abrams tanks that are a year, doesn't make a lot of sense. So some of it may just been feasibility. Some of it have been trying to figure out how strong was Russia really? How likely were they to escalate by going nuclear in one way or another, whether with a dirty bomb or uh, a tactical nuclear weapon. So I think some of us gauging Russia's response by making small steps and see how they react. 
And some of it was just, it takes the machinery time to accept the world as it is. So the bureaucratic decisions and political decisions that we need to send allow jet fighters to go or send tanks. It takes a while to get our political system there. And then it's finally the logistics and the, the train of events that have to happen with getting material, very large pieces of equipment over there, as well as people sufficiently trained to operate it when it gets there. Those are great insights. I didn't um, have that level of understanding. You, you know, you look at the Wagner Group, which is Putin's um, outsourced military, and when they're taking prisoners <laughs> and numbers and just sending them in ways untrained and not very effective, you know, I think as long as the West continues to support Ukraine, it's going to be really difficult for Putin. But I, th I think the Russian military has proved that it's kind of a second-tier military at best, at least right. to the rest of the world. So yeah. there's a kind of a wild card with China and their role and whether they stand on the side or they get more actively involved on the side of Russia. But, um, you know, I've seen recently that if Putin loses this engagement with the Ukraine, there's potentially some after effects and rumblings and disintegration in, in Russia. Uh, do you have any insights into that or would you care to speculate? Well, certainly Putin can't quit without finding something honorable to go home and claim victory, right? I think he's done politically if he walks away now. I don't know how he he stays there and, you know, licks his wounds and, and goes on. Uh, so I don't think, unless they're forced out, that or Putin dies or leaves, I don't think this ends. I think you already have huge repercussions to the economy in Russia. You've lost, you've had a huge brain drain. A million Russians have left the country. Young Russians have left the country, especially when this wave of conscription started last summer, right? Because some of the young, best, and brightest, the people that can get out, got out. You've got their major cash crop is, is oil and gas. You've got big restrictions on that. Um, of course, you've got a couple hundred thousand dead Russians, you know, young Russians. That's a major loss of equipment to rebuild their arsenal. They'll never have the treasure to do that again. They had this massive legacy arsenal from the Soviet days, right? So Russia is, even if it ended today as a draw and Putin stayed there somehow, it's a different country and countries, uh, companies' willingness to do business in Russia, I think will be forever changed. But I also thinking about your comment about China, do they engage? I think they realize that if right so far they haven't done everything, anything, they need Russia as a friend, but they need the global market more than that. There's already talk of, you know, Mexico becoming the new sort of China of manufacturing, right? Low-cost right. manufacturing, lots of, lots of people to work and very close to the, the U.S. market, which is the biggest market, right? China had a lot of problems related to these COVID shutdowns and plate Companies like Apple are looking for other places to do manufacturing just because 
stability. So if there's any form of sanctions or economic retaliation against China, I don't think they need it right now. And I don't know what the West would do, but there certainly have been Biden's made firm statements about if China China gets involved in this war, there will be repercussions. Well, I think um, your your political insights and your insights into what's going on in Ukraine are very timely and interesting. You know, Sean, as a a guest to the Ampex podcast, you're one of our most popular guests. So it's always exciting when you come back and share some insights and we get into one of these deep conversations. So I want to thank you for that very much. Well, thanks for having me back, Charles. It's always a pleasure to see you and spend time with you and hear what you're thinking. As long as I can remember from the time we were kids, you were always full of energy and full of ideas and that hasn't changed. You know, it's Sean and I go back, oh, probably close to 55 years or so, um, back to the early 70s. So we have a long friendship and we've kind of gone in different ways and traveled the world and done different things. So it's always good to reconnect. So we will take your um, humanitarian website and put that link into the thumbnails for the, the YouTube channel and the social media so people that are interested can make a donation to all this good work that you're doing and the personal time that you're you're investing we thank you so much for that um i couldn't do the ampex podcast without my team i'd like to thank lindsey soderberg in digital marketing and social media taylor higgins in production and seth nielsen in marketing and i'd also like to thank our guests. So please continue to tune in and subscribe to the Ampex podcast and all of our um, streaming services where you listen to your favorite podcast, whether it's Apple or Spotify. And we look forward to uh, engaging in our next conversation. Thanks for joining us on the Ampex podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure not to miss future episodes and please rate the show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks to our awesome production team, Lindsay Soderberg, social and digital marketing, Taylor Higgins, video production, and Seth Nielsen, marketing. See you next time.